Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus 20, verses uh, 1 to 17 to start. Just before we open God's word, let's pray that he would illuminate our hearts. Father, thank you for your word. Pray today that I would hide behind the cross, that the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage we're reading is a pretty familiar passage to many of you. I'm sure it's the uh, God's law uh, that he gave to the children of Israel at Sinai. Now, of course, these were people who had been redeemed by the Lord. Right in the first verses that we'll read, we'll recognize that he brought them out of Egypt. It was him who said, this is a people that I love. This is a people who I am, have chosen, not for any good reason of theirs, but just because I chose them. And now what I want to do is establish some family rules. And this is what Exodus 20 is about. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a, a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in it, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And this is the verse that we'll be concentrating on today. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. At Mukanyo, I have been teaching a class on ethics. And ethics is really the question, how should we live? 
what ought we to do? And God, in His grace, has given us the Ten Commandments to actually answer that question. Now you might say, hmm, I know this is kind of a Jewish uh, terrain here, and uh, oh no, I think we're going to be going towards a little bit of legalism here. And of course, your, your legalism guards are right up, right? Well, we're not going to quite go there, because of course, the bottom line will be, how did Jesus fulfill this commandment? The title of my sermon today is, A Vaccine Against Covetousness. You know, as I spoke to the students in class, one of them said, I think that most of the problems in his church, that is the church he, he pastors, he says most of them originate from a failure to observe the last commandment, the 10th commandment. In context, you could actually say that the very first commandment and the very last one ha have sort of a resonance. That is to say, both of them really deal with matters of the heart. The middle ones all deal with stuff that you can do on the outside. So if I made a little opinion poll today and I said, so um, how many murderers are here? Well, probably we'd find very few. And how many adulterers are here? We'd probably find very few. And how many disrespecters of parents are here? And maybe we'd find a few, but not too many. But when it comes to the first and the last, we realize that actually these are quite difficult because they are matters of the heart. Because if we say, how many of you had just a cringe of a little bit of jealousy when when that car just a little newer and just a little fancier and just a little nicer paint came by yours. And you go, oh, I'd really like that. Any of you had that? Okay, maybe none of you have cars. Maybe a bike, a little bit better bike. Oh, you know, he's got, it's made of titanium fiber. Oh, I need that. Okay, maybe you don't have a bike. Maybe it's a cell phone. Uh, I only have an iPhone 6. You know, I feel so lost. I, I don't, I, you know, they have 12s now. And I'm really, I, but you see what's happening? Our consumer culture is bombarding us all the time to say, you need to be discontent. You need to be discontent with what you have. It doesn't say godliness with contentment is great gain. It says, no, needing more all the time is life. But it's not. And that's why in the house rules for the children of Israel, God said, I need you to know that covetousness, a matter of the heart, is very toxic. And maybe as my students said, this actually is more dangerous than COVID because it's something that we as humans deal with. And maybe you say, okay, but you know, that's good. But maybe you're the pastor here. But you know that pastors and even missionaries, they suffer from covetousness. You go, how? Oh, if I just had more people in my church, if I just had a ch bigger church building, if I just had a more popular ministry, do you see how this can affect even good things? In Deuteronomy 5, verse 18, we have a mirror image of verse 17. 
And there it says, because that's also where the law is written, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then there's a subtle change, and you shall not desire your neighbor's field. That word for desire could well be rendered crave. Think about this. You shall not crave your neighbor's field. When they put the Old Testament into Greek, they translated it with a word that means overly strong or illegitimate desire. So right away they saw that there was something here that the human sometimes wants to crave what is not theirs. Going to Ecclesiastes, then I saw that all toil, all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. If we want to see this illustrated, we see this illustrated in the case of King David and his affair with Bathsheba. Think about King David. The man who sang the Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That is to say, he's singing a psalm, God is my shepherd, he leads me, and he provides me with everything I need. He's a man who's fought Goliath. He's a man who plays the harp. He's a man who's fought lions. He's a man who has wives. He's got it all. He's the king. And yet, in the time, as the Bible says, when the kings went out to war in the spring, King David said, I have the right to my leisure. And that leisure did something bad to King David. He rose from his couch. He was watching Netflix. And maybe Netflix put a little idea into his brain. It's okay to have something which is not legitimately yours. It's okay. After all, kings have needs, don't they? And King David must have bought into some lie. Not only that, I believe that King David, the one who sang these songs of the Lord being his reward, the Lord being everything, in his heart of hearts, he was actually discontent with what God had given him. And so he coveted his neighbor Uriah's wife See, behind that coveting of his wife, of his neighbor's wife, I believe there was an implicit discontentment. I am not happy with what God has given me. And today, this, I believe, is what challenges you and I. Are we content with what God has given us? Don't forget, we live in a culture that breeds discontentment. It's bombarding us all the time. And then 
somehow King David's imagination was let loose. He rose from his couch and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. Gentlemen in this audience, there is nothing wrong with beautiful women. But, and women in this audience, there is nothing wrong with being beautiful. But, he let his imagination go and somehow he said, it's okay to covet my neighbor's wife. And he sent and inquired, hmm, he sent messengers, then he took her, came, she came to him, he lay with her. And the Bible is very clear that at that time she was not pregnant. But then, of course, we know the story, right? The big cover-up has to happen. Do you see a trajectory of sin here? An implicit discontentment with what God has given somehow insisting on his rights for leisure, pleasure, whatever. And then down we went. And of course we know this. Uriah was killed. They had to have the cover up. And the Bible says, and the Lord was displeased. And as I'm speaking, you might say, well, what hope do we have? Because I think you probably realize that this is the stuff that us humans wrestle with. We somehow want more and we want to insist on our rights and we want to have and we want to compromise. And the good news is that we have Jesus. Think about Jesus when he said, and he said to them, Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. The greater son of David is saying this, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his or her possessions. Isn't that the message that we hear here through the society? If you get a little bit more, get a little bit more, then maybe they'll really honor you. But think about that scripturally. Is that really true? This is not to say that we should be some kind of slouches and that we should never aspire for anything. Don't get me wrong. But with what God has given us, can we be content? And here we have the Son of God who said this, the greater Son of David. Think about this. He's in heaven. Perfect fellowship with the Trinity. And he executes God's redemption plan. And imagine the conversation. I have the right not to go through a birth canal because birth canals are uncomfortable and it's bloody and it's ignoble for someone like me. <laughs> no. He said, I'll go through that. 
Then he said, I am the one who holds the universe together by the word of my power. And I deserve to be born in a noble situation. And I don't want to be born under scandal with a pregnant teenage woman. And I have the right to have a good place to live. And the reality is foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And I have the right to have a life of ease because I've worked hard to hold this universe together. And he walks. And he's told, you have a demon. I have the right to have a, an Egyptian chariot, the most modern technology of the day, to get around in my ministry. And he hoofs it around Galilee. I have the right for stuff. And he said, no, I don't need it. This is our Jesus. He had the ability to say, I don't need it. Look at what we sang today. Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you. And we sang about that. All I once held dear. And this is exactly Jesus. What a challenge to us to be that content with that many rights having died. Wow. The Apostle Paul says, Put to death, therefore, Colossians 3, verse 5, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, because covetousness is idolatry. You see, the very first commandment is against idolatry. And you shall have no other gods before me, or before my face, or in my presence. And yet, as John Calvin has said, the human heart is an idol factory. That's kind of our default setting. And that's why we need each other in the fellowship of believers to encourage each other, to ask each other, how is your idol factory being killed today? <laughs> that's, what we were, that's why we need each other. This business of individualistic Christianity of me and God have a good thing going and I could just have my fellowship out by the dam, by the rocks, it's not quite enough because we need to challenge each other. Do you know that in the revivals of East Africa in Kenya in, 19, in the 1930s, God exposed a great deal of sin. After that, this was sin in the church, by the way. After that, what they would do is they would ask each other, brother, are you walking in the light? And I think the question today is, 
brother, sister, speaking to myself, John, are you walking in the light of being content as a vaccine against covetousness? Are we walking in the light? Just look at the Apostle Paul finally. He learned somehow to abase and to the abound. Here's the master church planter saying, I don't need it. I don't need fame. I don't need fortune. I am content in him. Can you and I say, I don't need it? What the world is telling us, you need this, you need that. And what did he say? Godliness with contentment, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, is great gain. Going back to the commandments, we have the first and the last. You shall have no other gods before me, before my presence. And then what do we read in verse 17? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And in both cases, we have something or someone who is close to us. The Lord your God is close to you. Your neighbor is close to you. And the scripture challenges us, how is it with the things that are close to you? That's the challenge we have. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you set such an amazing example of dying to your rights, of being completely content. We thank you that today, even as we know in our heart of hearts that we struggle with these things, that you are both our example, but we throw ourselves in trust on you, on your complete obedience. We thank you that we have you. Forgive us when we have essentially said, like King David, the lot in life that you have given us, the things that you have given us in your providence are not good enough. And we're going to take matters into our own hands. Forgive us when we have had that hard attitude. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.